1337, the County of Sacramento versus Terry Lewis and Thomas Lewis. Mr. Cassidy. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Deputy Smith is entitled to qualified immunity in this case on the grounds that the law regarding substantive due process claims under the 14th Amendment was not clearly established at the time of the police pursuit in this case in May of 1990. In that regard, the legal standard was not sufficiently well developed, nor were the factual contours of such a claim developed so as to put a reasonable officer in the position of Deputy Smith on notice of what type of conduct would constitute a violation of substantive due process in the context of a police pursuit. May I ask you a question right at the start, please, Mr. Cassidy? Uh, the County of Sacramento apparently takes the position that a substantive due process violation does arise from a negligently conducted police chase of someone. I mean, you don't raise the question whether there is a substantive due process violation at all. You apparently assume there is, and then just want us to decide what standard to apply. Do I understand correctly that's your position? On Justice O'Connor, no, we do not concede that a negligent claim would support a violation of substantive due process. In fact, well, do we you have concede that on the facts in this case, the police pursuit case before us, that uh, the only inquiry is what standard to apply because there would be a substantive uh, due process violation? The petitioners in this case have asserted that the proper question presented is whether or not the, what the proper legal standard to be applied in a claim for substantive due process. There are amici briefs which have asserted that no claim lies in this case because of the accidental nature of the mm -hmm. conduct involved. But that's not the position taken by the county. Upon reflection, I would agree with that position as asserted by amici. However, it had not been asserted in the lower court or by us in our uh, briefing. What am I supposed to do? I mean, you, 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 give, me, you, you give me two options, uh, that uh, it's a substantive due process violation if, uh, if, it's, uh, uh, if it shocks the conscience or if it's, uh, uh, if it's uh, a grossly uh, uh, negligent conduct. Uh, what if I think none of the above? Justice Scalia, I grossly you, negligent conduct because that's the closest to uh, to not having a substantive due process violation at all. Well, no, Your Honor, uh, we would respectfully submit that in the event this court determines to adopt the type of approach it did in Albright versus Oliver, and determine that all claims, perhaps uh, involving a seizure, fall within the uh, Fourth Amendment standards then there would be no claim available under the 14th Amendment. Well, I certainly thought that's what this case was about when I first read about its facts. I mean, we've had a number of cases involving police chases, and they always come up as, uh, as unreasonable uh, seizure cases. And I would Lo and behold, I read this thing, and, and it's, it's somehow a substantive due process violation put in a whole different category of constitutional analysis. And the city just goes along with that. Is there any case uh, on record in, in which somebody has asserted that something like this, that a court has held that, that, that something of this sort is a substantive due process violation? I believe that the courts of appeal have analyzed the case law involving police pursuits under substantive due process violations or alleged violations. But if this court then looks... Certainly nothing that this court has. Correct. And, and if this court were to look at the recent May's opinion out of the Seventh Circuit, perhaps, and upon reflection by petitioners, we would submit that that may be the correct analysis. If only the Fourth Amendment were to apply in this case, then there would be no violation because, in fact, uh, the means that were used to, uh, uh, or were involved in this accident were not intentionally implied. So there was no seizure. So if this court is left to analyze it under the Albright analysis, then there would be no violation. Petitioner would prevail. I certainly, uh, you know, you, you, you cannot uh, 
expand uh, the First Amendment, for example, by saying, well, this doesn't violate any of our First Amendment law. However, we think this was a deprivation of liberty under the Due Process Clause, apart from the First Amendment. We wouldn't hear something like that. That's correct, Your Honor. Why should we do it for the Fourth? Upon reflection, petitioners would submit that it should not be so expanded and that perhaps the analysis by this Court in DeShaney versus Winnebago is the correct analysis, that in fact, if this Court were to allow the claim for substantive due process to go forward, it would substantially disrupt the political process. As this Court's noted in DeShaney, as well as in the recent Collins decision and the Washington versus Glucksburg, the political process is extremely important to allow the states to develop the appropriate law. But could you not have a high-speed chase that wouldn't involve the Fourth Amendment? For example, think back to the days of the Freedom Riders. Suppose there had been state police involved in just following these people on the road to terrorize them for mile after mile. not for the purpose of seizing them uh, for arrest, but to, to frighten them. Couldn't that be uh, an appropriate situation for a due process rather than a Fourth Amendment approach? Justice Ginsburg, it, it, although that dis- uh, specific type of uh, circumstance has not been decided by this court, the Fifth Circuit in the Checky versus Webb case did take that approach, and therein lies the basis for the analysis that potentially there could be such a claim. Uh, however, uh, I think that what that demonstrates is the fact that in the context of qualified immunity, Deputy Smith could not have known, as a reasonable officer in the field, what type of standards should be applied not only at the present time, but back in May of 1990. Well, do you, can, do you can see, if, if we assume for the sake of argument that this is properly a substantive due process case and not a Fourth Amendment case, are we supposed to take the case on the assumption that on at least one of the two alternative standards that has been proposed here, there is a substantive due process violation? That seems to be the assumption of the state's position, but I may be wrong. No, I believe there was no uh, violation of substantive due process, regardless of which standard may be adopted. So it's not merely a question of he didn't know which. We we may assume uh, that, in fact, it would be findable today that there is no substantive due process violation, even assuming that this is a substantive due process case. Well, one. Because usually we don't, get, we don't get wrapped around problems of, of, of uh, qualified immunity unless we are at least assuming that now there's a violation. So that's why I want to know whether you are conceding that now on at least one of these standards there would be a substantive due process violation. No, we are not. If the court determines to reach the issue and make a determination as to what the proper legal standard is, petitioners do not concede under either standard that has been posited that, in fact, there may have been a violation. I suppose you take the position that there was no, A, there was no violation, but B, if you should find a violation, there was nonetheless qualified immunity. That's correct. Why, why wasn't this case disposed of on the basis of qualified immunity? I think our cases have said that the court should, should, should make that inquiry first before they move on to decide uh, uh, constitutional questions. And even if this is a substantive due process violation, it's surely a brand new one, isn't it? Well, in fact, Justice Scalia, uh, petitioners would heartily agree, and in fact the district court did dispose of this matter on behalf of Deputy Smith with respect to the qualified immunity issue, and we believe correctly did so. We believe that the Ninth Circuit's analysis rejects this court's prior teachings in Harlow and Malley versus Briggs and determines that under this very gray area of conduct that is sufficiently egregious that somehow an officer in the context of the rubric of the 14th Amendment should have known that his conduct may violate a constitutional right, and we believe that this case should be disposed of on qualified immunity grounds. 
In fact, in the recent Lanier case, which analogizes to the qualified immunity context, uh, this Court specifically pointed out that when the case law leaves open the general rule to be applied, then it's necessary that there be a very high degree of factual particularity in order to overcome that immunity. In the context of a police pursuit that occurred in May of 1990, no such factual particularity was present. There were several cases that had analyzed this issue. However, in those cases, excepting the Checky versus Webb case, there were no violations found, and only in Checky was there some suggestion there may have been a violation. But circumstances in that case law had involved uh, excessive speeds, traveling too closely, uh, failing to activate lights and sirens, failing to call in by radio, violate, alleged violations of departmental policies, alleged violations of state law, all of which had resulted in a finding of no liability. So certainly the factual contours were not sufficiently developed in May of 1990 to provide and put a reasonable officer on notice that he could be held liable. But in the Malley case, this court points out that specifically if reasonable officers could disagree as to whether there may have been a violation, then the immunity applies. And we, petitioners respectfully submit that, in fact, that's exactly what occurred in this case. Reasonable officers could certainly disagree as to whether there was some potential for liability in May of 1990 arising out of the facts and circumstances of this case in the context of an alleged violation of substantive due process. And on that basis, petitioners respectfully request that this court find that there was qualified immunity that Deputy Smith is entitled to, and therefore petitioners prevail. If this court proceeds to analyze what the proper legal standard is with respect to an alleged violation of substantive due process, then petitioners respectfully submit that the standard should be one that is either arbitrary or shocks the conscience. In that regard, I think it's important to look at the policy considerations which may be affected. Specifically, there should be deference given to the political process and the nature of the interests involved in the type of case in the, in the circumstance or in the context of a police pursuit. There's also the impact... Can I ask on the, on the political process, is it correct that in California the officers are immune for this kind of conduct, even if it's no matter how gross? You are correct, Justice Stevens, in that the individual officer is immune. However, the entity may be held liable under appropriate circumstances. In other words, the city might be held liable. Correct. On a respondeat superior type of approach? Or? That's correct. However, they leave the office, individual officer out of the context of that civil liability. And there is a specific statutory scheme which has been adopted by California that not only allows for the potential for a municipality to be liable in the context of a Code 3 uh, emergent vehicle operation, but also specifically the legislature has adopted a statute that encourages departments in California to adopt an appropriate police uh, or law enforcement agency policy regarding pursuits so as to potentially avoid liability if the accident results from the vehicle operated by the suspect. Now, in, in, in this case, did the, the plaintiff sue the county, too, yes. uh, on, on state law grounds? Correct. Yeah. And a portion of that was dismissed at the district court level, and a portion of that was reserved, uh, specifically whether or not the county of Sacramento would be immune from liability under the vehicle code section that provides for the adoption of an appropriate pursuit policy, as well as the issue of whether or not it was an accident that resulted from the operation of the suspect's vehicle in this case. I think that if the less stringent standard is adopted by the court in this case, then it will effectively remove this type of claim from the political process. This type of claim is appropriate to be resolved by the states in adopting their state tort laws. Specifically, the persons directly affected, whether be they in the category of suspects or in the category of innocent bystanders, it is clear that the states and those bystanders being the very electorate that affect the laws of the state should have a say in whether or not there should be recovery. Well, of course, we don't ordinarily uh, uh, say that 
if there's uh, when we're trying to interpret a provision of the Constitution, that uh, the public ought to have some input on it. Uh, I mean, certainly we, we hear argument and we try to figure out what those who uh, adopted that provision may mean, but we don't generally say that let's hear what, what the people have to say about it. But indirectly, Mr. Chief Justice, we do that through our state legislatures. And, and that is precisely what this court has looked to to see whether or not states w would adopt and should adopt appropriate laws to govern these types of situations. And that's what the court referred to in Collins, uh, directing to leave this to the area of the uh, local representatives rather than an interpretation of the charter of uh, the government for this entire country. That, that it becomes a judicial interpretation as opposed to a political interpretation. But, but I, th I think Collins first evaluated whether or not there was a, a, a substantive due process violation and said no, and said, therefore, uh, this is left to the political process. I, I mean, I think you first have to do your reasoning on the constitutional point, then the result may be that it's left to the political process. Uh, I understood that was the analysis uh, in the Collins case. However, we would respect that there should be some deference given to the state political process as explored in the DeShaney decision because that is important to determine whether this court will expand its interpretation of claims for substantive uh, violations of due process. Well, we, we do it if we first conclude that it is not arbitrary that, what, that whatever the state action was that caused the injury was not arbitrary in the sense of just being beyond the realm of, of reason as something that a state might choose to do or a governmental actor might choose to do. Is, is it your argument here, I, I take it ultimately it is, uh, that uh, you simply cannot say that a high-speed chase, assuming there is cause uh, to, to apprehend in the first place, uh, is so totally beyond the realm of... of reasonable conduct uh, uh, addressing a legitimate governmental object as ever to fall into that arbitrary character. Is, is that your position? Well, I believe that the initiation and continuing of high-speed pursuits uh, are not arbitrary, at least in most circumstances. They may be unwise, but they are not, as it were, so totally beyond the realm of reason as to, as to rise to the level of a substantive due process violation. I, I believe that's correct. There is a rational purpose, more often than not, I think, uh, in the substantial number of police pursuits that allow for those pursuits to take place. And, and now how do you distinguish those, and I I'm, I'm now mixing apples and oranges here, but how do you distinguish those, uh, your position there, from the, uh, from the analysis that occurs in, in an unreasonable force, situ force situation under the Fourth Amendment? Uh, why, why, is the, why can we not say, let's say, in unreasonable force cases, uh, that, sure, the force is always directed uh, to the to the consummation of a legitimate governmental object, which is the apprehension uh, of, the, uh, of, of the suspect um, or the, the person for whom there is a warrant. Why don't, we, why don't we, in effect, dismiss all of those cases on the same analysis? Well, because I believe that in terms of the Bill of Rights and specifically the Fourth Amendment, that those are directed toward uh, guaranteeing certain minimal levels of safety whereas the 14th Amendment is essentially the residual provision. Uh, it's a limitation on state powers as opposed to uh, the guarantees that would fall within the Fourth Amendment. Well, would it be fair to say that the fourth ca force cases are all cases in which there can be or could have been or was an apprehension in the first place, uh, and it's clear that by by no stretch of the imagination was the force necessary to accomplish the object. Is, would that be a fair characterization? Well, that would be true, Your Honor. And in this case, it isn't correct to say that by no stretch of the imagination the speed was unnecessary to catch the person. Is that the distinction? Well, that is true, and, and that we are still in the realm, potentially, of the show of authority as opposed to the actual means put in motion to 
caused the apprehension. Well, Mr. Cassidy, uh, doesn't the Fourth Amendment itself speak in terms of unreasonableness? Correct. So that that would supply the standard for the Fourth Amendment, but perhaps would not supply the standard for uh, some other analysis. That is correct, Your Honor. And do you know of any case uh, under under substantive due process in which the deprivation in question was negligent, or even grossly negligent, or even no. even shocking the conscience, but not intentional? Under the Fourth Amendment or Fourth? Under the substantive due process clause. Under the due process clause, which we have interpreted to be a substantive clause. I'm sorry. I, I, is there any, ca any case no, law? Your, your argument concedes that if it shocks the conscience, it doesn't matter if, if the officer did not intend to deprive this individual of his life. Correct. Do you know of any other substantive due process cases where there has been a negligent, even grossly negligent, deprivation of life that was held to violate substantive due process. I don't know that we concede that it should be something less than uh, intentional. Uh, so that, you don't I, make the argument anywhere, and I, I you know, I was I believe surprised we, not to see it made. I believe we did state that it would be necessary in the context of adopting the shocks the conscience standard that uh, that be aligned with the need for intentional and deliberate conduct in order to support a violation for substantive due process under the 14th Amendment. Well, is what you're saying that uh, conduct which is not intentional very likely would not shock the conscience. Shock the conscience suggests something moral, and simply gross negligence perhaps does not raise any moral question. That's correct. We believe that the logical extension of shocks the conscience in terms of the framework of defining such a claim would be that uh, of the language previously adopted by Judge Friendly in Johnson versus Glick, whether in fact there was conduct on the part of an officer that was malicious or sadistic for the very purpose of causing harm. And only in those circumstances could there potentially be a claim asserted for a violation of substantive due process in the context of a police pursuit. Why, why couldn't there be? So I'm, I'm thinking about it possibly a little differently from some things that you say. There, there is a category of cases where government officials deprive a person of life. They're police officers, and most, but not all of those, fall under the Fourth Amendment. That's one category. Correct. And there's a second category where they behave in ways that shock the conscience. That's a second category, not the first. Then there's possibly a third category that Justice Ginsburg mentioned, where you could have conduct, perhaps it's rare, but someone who's not a policeman, someone who doesn't behave in a way that shocks the conscience, but nonetheless either negligently, recklessly, or intentionally deprives a person of his life. Now, that might be covered by the 14th Amendment, mightn't it? I mean, at least where someone intentionally deprives a person of his life. Uh, well, what should the standard be there? Maybe it wasn't a policeman. Maybe it was a health officer. I don't know who it was. But uh, uh, what should the standard be in that third category of cases? Would you say it never violates the Constitution to intentionally deprive a person of his life without justification? Would you say reckless? Would you say negligent? Does it depend on whether the state provides an adequate tort remedy so that the process is okay or not okay? What's the standard in that third area? That's I believe, what I'm not certain about, which is why I ask. I believe that third area should be handled by the state under the state. So even if process, a person, even if a health officer, for example, intentionally murdered somebody under color of law, didn't shock the conscience, but was awful, doesn't violate the Constitution, even if the state provides no remedy. I have difficulty finding that that perhaps would not shock the conscience. However, that may You're fall going to expand the shock the conscience category. I mean, that's a way of dealing with it. That, that may also be a claim under the Fourth Amendment, because that person affected a seizure of that party. If it's a non-police officer, it may not be, but... That, it's our position that, that that gray area, the Fourth Amendment, would 
handle the claims for alleged uh, unreasonable seizures of the person. The 14th Amendment, as petitioners have proposed, should be limited to only those claims that involve conduct that shocks the conscience. Any other areas should be covered by the state tort law and the political process in the states to adopt the appropriate tort remedies as the legislatures in the state see fit. A good example of that is all of the statistical data that was submitted to this court in the context of police pursuits. This court should not certainly be forced to wade through all of those statistical statistics in order to make its decision in this case. However, the states are in the position to assess what statistical data is appropriate and to determine what remedies should be invoked. And with that, How about an Chief individual Justice, instance would, like, like Checky itself? Would you, would you agree that that is an illustration of where you might have, where you have conduct that is shocking? I believe Checky is an illustration. For instance, another illustration would potentially be when an officer knows the identity of a suspect and could apprehend them at a later time, but however proceeds to intentionally harass and threaten that person by tailgating them at, at two to three feet at speeds of an excess of 100 miles an hour. Mr. Chief Justice, I may, would like to... May I ask just one quick question, please, before you sit down? I wanted to get back to this case, and you said at the beginning that you thought if it were a Fourth Amendment case, there's clearly no liability. Why is that? Why isn't an attempted seizure subject to the Fourth Amendment? Because I believe that this Court has previously addressed that question regarding the show of authority in the Hodari case, and there is no seizure. And that was confirmed by this Court's opinion in Brower. With that, Mr. Chief Justice, I would like to defer my time. Very well, Mr. Cassidy. Mr. Hedlund, we'll hear from you. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. This Court and the Constitution protect fleeing felons from lethal force, except in certain circumstances. It would seem that this Court and the Constitution would do the same for people who only commit minor traffic infractions, and especially for innocent trapped passengers like Philip Lewis. Furthermore, it is submitted that it no, should not be... It, it sort of begs the question to call this lethal force. When you say lethal force, you, I mean, that, 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 that indicates, uh, you know, intentionally uh, trying to kill the person. That, that's not in this case at all, is it? The f well, I think in this case... It was at most an irresponsibly uh, uh, speedy chase. Was there um, any indication that there was an intent to kill anybody, to apply lethal force? Well, actually, when you look at the end of the accident itself, the police officer during his deposition uh, will not even concede that he hit the individual that you'll see on page, I think it's 106 of the appendix, that here is an individual who's ejected or stands up in the center of a two-lane highway. How in the world can the uh, officer who has 200 feet prior to impact hit the individual who's in the center of a two-lane highway. You shouldn't worry about the shocks the conscience standard then. If you have a case where a policeman, you know, just, just revved up and drove right into somebody, uh, why should you worry about shocks the conscience? Well, I that certainly shocks my conscience. It certainly shocks mine. It's, I think I can prevail in any jury on any test this court wishes to present. However, I think that the test, and that is really the crucial issue that was presented here originally, the test, and I think this case is properly analyzed under the 14th Amendment. I think all the lower courts have actually analyzed most cases under the 14th Amendment. Was that true here, after our opinion in Connor against Graham as well as before? I know that there had been some fort, uh, considerable use of uh, the substantive due process yeah, in dealing with police use of force and arrest before our opinion in Connor. But in, in Connor, of course, we said those kind of things come under the Fourth Amendment. Are the cases you're talking about, do they come after Connor? Oh, yes. And, and I mean, there are legions of cases, and some of them uh, use shocks to conscience, and some of them use reckless disregard. The Ninth Circuit concepts, aren't they? Shocks the conscience certainly connotes something intentional, whereas reckless disregard 
connotes something indifference, but not intent. Well, I think it connotes reckless intent, which is well. You know, well reckless intent is is a kind of an oxymoron. Reckless means you don't care, and intent means you do. Well, I think there's that's exactly the point that's presented here. And I would like to make one more point when I say about the 14th Amendment. The individual who's killed in this case represents almost an innocent bystander because he's on the back of a motorcycle, but at the time that he was actually killed, he was standing in the middle of the street um, because he had stepped off the motorcycle. It had stopped, and it was stopped in response. Well, if, 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 you, if, as you say, you can persuade a jury that the, the, the police officer just did this intentionally, as Justice Scalia says, you will win under any standard. But the Ninth Circuit didn't analyze it as if that were the case. It analyzed as it as if it were gross negligence. No, I, I disagree. I, in well, fact, but, the Ninth Circuit asked me specifically what I thought the standard would be and, and suggested whether I thought the standard should be gross negligence, and I said, I think if you do that, the Supreme Court will reverse you right away. I, I don't think that gross negligence today... Um, so what, what did the Ninth Circuit decide was the standard? Reckless disregard, conscious indifference. Yeah, but that, that still is not your case, where the, the police officer simply guns the motor, what? sees this guy standing, and says, I'm going to kill him. No, I, the person didn't gun the motor. He laid down 166 He's feet. Coasted in over No, no, you don't coast with 166 feet of four-wheel lock skid. We concede that. He wished he got out of the way. Yes, I concede that. Well, he he wished that. And he wasn't exactly an innocent bystander. I mean, he was riding on a motorcycle in violation of his parole the motorcycle being driven by someone whom he had been told as a condition of his parole to stay away from. Right. So there was some reason to believe that the reason they were both fleeing was that they were, if, if found together, were in violation of their parole for Grand Theft Auto on some other occasion. It was joyriding for joyriding. Philip Lewis. Well, whatever. Well, but from the position of the officer, that there was, they didn't know these kids at all. And when they were perceived originally, they were walking the motorcycle between the two police cars. The officer that instituted the chase didn't even know if the lights that were put on on Mr. Stapp's uh, automobile were intended for Mr. Lewis or, or for Mr. Uh, Brian Willard, more specifically, because he didn't realize that the police, when they turned the lights on, were trying to stop them. There is no indication that officer... Smith, who did this incredibly reckless act, even saw, even knew that Philip Lewis or Brian Willard saw the lights. The only evidence is that Officer Stapp saw lights go on, and he was below the car and at an angle. He was faced in this direction. He looked over his shoulder. The, boy, the boys, at one time, he says, or another, looked at him and then proceeded off. He immediately turned his car in a three-point turn and proceeded out at a high rate of speed. And how, which was necessary to catch up to the motorcycle. How fast was the motorcycle going? At that point... And he asked them specifically because he said they accelerated away quickly. And I said, what does that mean? You've, oh, at a high rate of speed, he said. At a high rate of speed they went. This is a 1976 Honda uh, motorcycle that had just been worked on and finally fixed so it could even run. And he says, well, that means they accelerated quickly to the speed limit and then beyond. The truth, when you, when you see, as I have, the testimony of Officer Smith, everything in his testimony smacks of this incredible callous indifference and this incredible hostility for an incident that was really created beforehand, which he came out of. He, came, he and the other officer came out of a, a house dispute 
which was turned nasty. And he got back in his car, stabbed himself. All he heard was the revving of a motorcycle. He assumed that the revving of the motorcycle meant something, perhaps that the motorcycle was uh, going fast. Well, we're here to talk about what standards should be applied in determining these cases well, and, that's and whether or not the Ninth Circuit was correct. If Collins versus Harker Heights controls the case, what should be the outcome? Well, I actually like the, the uh, opinion in Collins because it, it seems to me to indicate that that Collins is a situation in which the court is willing, if the, if the conduct, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, is so egregious that it shocks the conscience. That means to say that now, that's I... that's not what the Court of Appeals held, was it? The Court of Appeals held reckless indifference, which is really mistaking the analysis given in Collins. Well, in, Collins, in Collins, we used, of course, reckless indifference, but that was just to get over the Monell liability problem, not the substantive problem. So you are then not defending the Ninth Circuit analysis. I, I am defending the Ninth Circuit analysis. I thought it was a good analysis and an appropriate analysis. Did you I, think it was correct under Collins, despite the fact that they used the second prong test, municipal liability, to determine the first question, whether or not there was a substantive violation? Well, I think they just determined that the same test should apply for municipal liability as applies to the underlying that's, violation. But that's quite exactly contrary to what the court held in Collins. But Collins is a particular case that doesn't present the issues that, that this case presents at all. Collins is a way of getting around workers' comp statutes. Well, Collins We're not is an interpretation of the substantive due process clause, and it uses the shock the conscience test. It tried to give it an objective component, not a subjective component. And the Ninth Circuit is the only one that seems to have misunderstood it. And it has done so in your case. And so it doesn't seem to me that you can, on the one hand, say that you like being with Collins, and on the other hand, defend the judgment of the Ninth Circuit. Well, I, what I was saying is that Collins, to me, uh, reading Collins indicated that when you're dealing with non-core fundamental issues such as life, here it's a failure to train, and you're dealing with non-specifically governmental entities like a sanitation department, which could be anything, there is a desire not to expand at all the the 14th Amendment into areas... So there was no question in Collins whether or not a governmental official was involved. And I, I'm, I'm not sure no, I know of any authority for the proposition that depending on the, whether or not you're a police officer or, or some other municipal employee, the standard of, of, of uh, 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 under the Due Process Clause differs. Oh, I you, think it does. What, is it the, what, what case do you have for that? I don't... I, to me, the Collins case so specifically you, is, is says that this is not the kind of governmental function that the 14th Amendment was normally designed by the framers to protect against. Because the our, standard of shock the conscience was not met. We're talking about standards. We have different I, standards of, of liability under the 14th Amendment depending on a whole range of different governmental officers. If the injury is the same, we would base it on what the injury is. So is it the... I mean, it, 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 it seems to me that if you're, you're going to either defend the Ninth Circuit analysis or, or you're not. And if you're going to defend the Ninth Circuit analysis, then you have to ask us to alter the analysis that we used in Collins. I don't believe that the analysis in Collins applies. I think shocks the conscience test that was enunciated in Collins is a good test for situations which are outside the normal purview of the 14th Amendment and which this court does not want to be overridden by every administrative decision that occurs. And in those cases, I think it's perfectly appropriate, and I applaud the court. Well, do you, do you think that high-speed auto chases are the sort of thing that the 14th Amendment was designed to address? Absolutely. In, that is in, the... In 1868? Well, high-speed... Uh, 
automobile chases. Carriage chases. Well, and carriage chases didn't wreak the havoc that a 4,000-pound automobile doing 100 miles an hour behind some kids when the police officer himself says, talk about shocks of conscience, that, that he was concerned for the safety of the passenger because the passenger's on the back of that errant motorcycle and not wearing a helmet. Oh, that, that can I ask you, uh, follow, uh, you may not agree with what I'm, my analysis, but assume it for a second. Assume that you could recover under the Fourth Amendment were it not for the problem of seizure. So we're not right. talking about the Fourth Amendment. I'll assume for the sake of argument that you could prove a shock to conscience. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Yeah. But I'd say there is a category of shock the conscience behavior. If you win on that one, fine. But I don't think that's what's in front of us. I think what's in front of us is the concern with a middle category of case where a government official deprives a person of his life. The Constitution says you can't. All right, now, with property, I think this court said in Parat that you're going to look to state law because they provide the procedure that's due. All right, with life, Maybe it makes a difference whether it's intentional, reckless, or negligent, and whether the state provides procedure that's due. That's what I want to know. What's the procedure that you'd get here under state law? That is to say, can you recover from the municipality here under state law so that your client, if there was negligent or reckless or <coughs> wrongful behavior, would be compensated? Does state law permit that or not? I don't think it's as easy as yes or no. I think yes. The defendants say no. They still say no. They say, and I've been down this line enough times, that every single possible immunity, there's one that says fleeing people trying to evade don't have, you know, uh, that, that uh, an officer and the municipality are both immune from that liability, and then they try to say that the person on the back of the motorcycle was a co-conspirator or something like that, it had some agreement that he was going to continue. Actually, in fact, the agreement here was that um, Mr. Lewis asked uh, Brian Willard to stop and pull over on Orangevale, which is where the accident happened. Now, of course, what will happen eventually is either they will show that he's either participating or when we get to the negligence claim, if we ever get to there, they will say, well, then he was partially negligent for asking him to stop. Right well, Mr. Hedlund, you still have, I guess, unresolved at this stage, state law claims yes. against the police officer yes. and the county. I have unresolved all claims. I've never had a trial. I well, there was a summary judgment at issue here. Right. That's what we're dealing right. with. But uh, with regard to the Section 1983 claims only, isn't that right? No, the summary judgment went to the state claims too, and the federal judge there uh, proceeded to knock me out on the state claims to the extent that, that he could, and then reserved the one left. Well, in one any left. event, as I understand the situation, you have remaining for disposition yes. in the lower courts claims of negligence or gross negligence against the officer and the... the not the officer anymore. The immunity applied to him completely. But to the county... To the county. Yes. Otherwise, the county is out on this. Is it something like the Federal Tort Claims Act where the, the governmental body is substituted for the, the individual who may have been negligent? Well, is it respondeat superior uh, that exempts the officer? Yes. In practicality, the officer is exempted anyway because the... Judgment proof? Well, they... No. Not because of judgment proof, but because of agreements that are reached between the uh, entities and their employees. They originally uh, request insurance, but they have a backup uh, plan and they, they indemnify the employee. May I ask you if this case were analyzed under the 
Fourth Amendment rather than substitute process, what do you think a proper disposition would be? Well, I think I would, in terms of disposition, you mean what, what would be well, found? I, I think I would win hands down, objective test of reasonable force. How would you get over the, the possible hurdle that there was actually no seizure here? Well, that's the problem. That's why it's uh, analyzed under the 14th Amendment. It's unfortunate. But the truth is that one-third of all these deaths, which, by the way, are occurring one a day, in high-speed chases. This is a phenomenal problem. It kills exactly, almost to the individual. In 1995, 383 people each, as much as handguns, used by police. So it is the... Do you have any idea how many dangerous felons have been captured in, in high-speed chases who would have killed more than 383 people? Well, there's no statistics. I mean, it's, it's all a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? And, and I, I guess if the, you know, uh, I, can't really... You know, I think, though, I think that the notion of the 14th Amendment is that there are certain arbitrary procedures. When you pursue someone for no cause, there is without sufficient justification, and you endanger so many people's lives going over a blind hill at night, well, I know we, you have this big wind-up, but what's the answer to Justice Stevens' question? What is the standard under the Fourth Amendment? We're talking about standards here. Uh, we can apply those standards to the facts uh, in, the, in the judicial system, but we want to know what the standard think, is so we can instruct the Ninth I Circuit that it was the, correct or not. I think it's Farmer versus Brennan is a, is a good standard uh, that disregarding a known risk um, I think that, that that is enough to give intent. If it weren't for Brower, um, I think that we would, we would uh, agree with the notion of an analysis under uh, the, the Fourth Amendment. I think that... So there can never be a, a lawful, uh, or there never can be a high-speed chase? No, I think, either with the, I think that the, one has to balance. There's always a known risk. If you're going to drive That's that true. fast, there's a known risk, and, and presumably you disregard it when you, when you make the chase. So how do you distinguish between the cases in which there is it would be recovery and those in which there would not be? Is it justified? Is there some compelling reason? You know, you, there are so many policy questions that, that should be answered here. What, what is this officer going to do when he catches up? What can you do? What, what, should the, what should the line be? Felony misdemeanor? I Lack of probable cause? Probable serious, cause? serious felonies. You can engage in a, the same as, as firing your weapon. I don't think there's really any difference. I think this, these high-speed chases represent exactly to the man the same a problem that the discharge of, of the officer's weapon, except to use the military phraseology, they have an incredible kill radius. You know, I, I'd be sympathetic if, you're, if your client were a bystander, but it takes two to make a chase. And, not and, not and, when one's and, driving and motor. You're, well, he was not driving. He was sitting right behind the fellow that was driving. There's no reason to believe that he wasn't uh, uh, happy to get away as much as the person who was driving. And he owned the motorcycle. And he owned the motorcycle. He owned the motorcycle. Uh, and that was his crime. Right. He owned the motorcycle. He'd owned it for five days. He fixed it up, took it down to a gas station. At the gas station was Mr. Brian Willard. He argued with Mr. Brian Willard not to go on the bike. But he said, my father bought it for me. If you're going to take it, I have to go along with you. My father will kill me otherwise. Yes. Did you, that, put, did you put Mr. Brian Willard on the stand who said, uh, who said the decedent kept yelling in my ear, please slow down, stop, stop. Did, did that happen? Yes. You put him on the stand and that's what he said? That's what he has said. He did <clears throat> not say that in his deposition. He said he didn't remember that. He didn't remember be, being asked to pull over. He told the police when he turned himself in. You know, Mr. Brian Willard left the scene. He was okay. He was a little further from the center of the road on the, in the oncoming lane on the other side. They're all this is what you've said. It's all violating their standards and so forth. 
Is there any reason, assuming your facts are right, is there any reason to think you could not recover against the uh, state, uh, against the municipality under state law? Assuming your facts are what they say, what you just said. All the facts are just as you said them. Is there any reason to think that state law would not give you a tort remedy against the municipality or against the county? I believe it will. You believe it will. All right. And uh, is the... Uh, fine. I have always believed it would. Um, you know, one of the things... Forty percent... Forty percent of these high-speed police... In the chases, if you're going into the statistics, they're very much contested in these briefs, and I'm not okay. certain. I mean, okay. one of the briefs in the municipality says 300 a year out of the 2.2 million people... It's now 400. Who, but all right, but there are 2.2 or 2.3 million people who die. It's very bad that there are three or 400. That's terrible, but, but, uh, but that's not uh, enormous in terms of the number of people who die in accidents. That's what one side says, and... I guess the other side focuses on this, and I'm not sure that it's directly related, is it or not, in your opinion? Well, I believe that it's related from the standpoint, is this, is this a problem that rises to constitutional dimensions? And I think that you, the court should consider not only, if this were an isolated event, it wouldn't come to the court's attention. It wouldn't be fought for all these years by the police departments, the reason they're fighting like this is because they want to continue this. They want to continue to take the lives of innocent well, may, may, Maybe they're fighting it because they think the Ninth Circuit was wrong and didn't follow our cases. To be sure. It's happened but, before. Uh, <laughs> I hope that doesn't color the courts uh, or give a jaundiced eye towards the Ninth Circuit. I think the Ninth Circuit correctly uh, determined this. I think it's the only, uh, the only methodology that we have, and this court has available to it in a single sweep to in announce policy that will, make, that will be incorporated into policy immediately, that will make... But we, we don't announce policy, Mr. No. You, you know. All you have to do is say, we're not talking about an expansion of the 14th Amendment. We're talking an application of it. This is exactly what the 14th Amendment, although the framers didn't know about cars then, they certainly knew about arbitrary, abusive, oppressive government power, and there can be no more core government function that affects the individuals in the society every single day than the interface that occurs exactly out on the streets with the police car fully lit and right behind you showing every bit of color of law that's available. And that color of law is depriving innocent people of their lives every day with no justification whatsoever. And, and yet one of the leading cases that you rely on didn't show color of law. In fact, wasn't that one of the problems in Checky, that it was an unmarked vehicle, that this um, police vehicle was chasing for something like 20 miles without any indication that it was a police car? Well, again, that, that brought it out of, uh, you know, normal, perhaps, Fourth Amendment-type uh, situations. But you think a car with lights on is worse? You think a marked police car is worse? Well, I think it, it removes any question of whether it's under color of law. Um, it also removes any question of whether the person fleeing uh, didn't know he was fleeing from an officer trying to make an arrest. Yes, the person fleeing was Brian Willard the driver of the motorcycle. And that still bears upon the guilt of the police officer, whether the police officer reasonably continued the chase. When it may not he, make your client any when he's more saw, guilty, but it certainly makes the police officer uh, uh, more reasonable in, in continuing the pursuit, knowing that the person sees the, the police lights, hears the siren, and, and is fleeing. Well, the problem that we have in all of these, and, and one of the things that we see constantly in the uh, petitioner's briefs and the amicus briefs on his behalf, 
is that there's a justification because you might catch other people. Or in one of the amicus briefs, he even goes so far as to say that a person who has such contempt or disregard for law and order and law enforcement officials that the removal of that person from society serves a valuable function. I, I, you know, I, I can't imagine the kind of transgression on fundamental constitutional rights that is envisioned by that statement, and nor can I envision what practical uh, result is going to occur when the things discovered after the chase actually give reason for the chase to begin with. That's like saying if we went into everyone's homes, we find a lot of people have done crimes. That's not what this country is about. That's not what the Constitution is about. But presumably, uh, most citizens know that if they violate the traffic laws and a police car attempts to stop them, they should stop and yield to the authority. I mean, most of us understand that. That's exactly true. Most of us understand that you shouldn't murder someone, but the problem is that there are certain situations, most of the time murders, and most of the time fleeing, occurs because for some reason or another, it's a kid, it's somebody who just makes a, a decision that's irrational. Most people stop. Well, there was at least testimony here by the young man who survived that the decedent kept urging him to flee. There was a statement, not kept, but that, that the decedent said at one point, let's get out of here in the beginning. Thank you, Mr. Hedlund. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Cassidy, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. I think there is a simple remedy in, that case, in this case, and that is to pull over and stop and yield to lawful authority. It's the criminal that initiates the reckless conduct and endangers the public. The law enforcement officer is simply trying to apprehend the suspect and uphold his duties of office. Mr. Cassidy, case, I, d I did want to call to your attention one thing. You, on page is it 20 of your brief, uh, you refer to the decisions of Evans and Temkin, and you say that uh, this court, uh, this court, uh, well, you tell me what you said. You, the court had implicitly approved of the Court of Appeals decisions in those cases. Uh, only to the extent the issues presented on the petitions for the writ before this court. Uh, were exactly the same question presented in the reverse, and this court declined hearing. Is it denial of sorcery uh, an implicit appro approval of anything? Uh, no, certainly not authority, Your Honor, but some indication that this court is approved of that analysis as opposed to this court's, uh, the Ninth Circuit's analysis in this case. Gee, I hope not. I, I, I have voted to deny sorcery in a lot of cases whose analysis I don't approve of. Accepted, Your Honor. Uh, quickly, petitioners would prevail because there was no Fourth Amendment claim in this case. So even if this court were to determine that the Fourth Amendment applied, not only was there no seizure in this case, but no Fourth Amendment claim was asserted. In terms of the factual circumstances, petitioners respectfully submit Deputy Smith was acting appropriately and that, in fact, Mr. Lewis did initiate and cause Mr. Willard to proceed uh, and flee from Deputy Smith. Uh, Mr. Willard admitted in deposition that he knew Deputy Smith was trying to stop him initially and during the course of the pursuit. And if, in fact, this pursuit was coming to a conclusion because these two individuals decided to stop, you don't yield to lawful authority in the middle of the road. The simple fact of the matter is they crashed the motorcycle in the middle of the road because had they made good their left-hand turn about 150 feet down the road or so, there's a barrier that would not let police vehicles through, but the motorcycle would make good its escape. <clears throat> I think there is a valid justification in the fact that pursuits are conducted and oftentimes result in finding suspects who have committed more serious crimes. And I think that's an important policy consideration that this court should look to. In addition, with all the discussion we've had here today, 
Petitioners would respectfully submit that it seems clear that Deputy Smith is entitled to qualified immunity on the grounds that the law was clearly not established sufficiently in May of 1990 to hold Deputy Smith liable. Moreover, if this Court determines that there is potentially a claim under the 14th Amendment, then we would submit the appropriate legal standard as conduct that shocks the conscience and Collins is controlling. The cases which fall in between the cracks, so to speak, are those to be left for the states to decide. That's specifically the type of policy choices that should be made by the people of the various states through their local representatives, but should not be thrust upon them by the judicial expansion of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Thank you. With that submitted. Thank you, Mr. Cassidy. The case is submitted.